Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. And uh, if you haven't seen me for a while, it's because I've been up the hill in Kloof. Um, Paul has been on leave, a uh, long leave, and so I've been uh, covering the bases there. So, but I'm back today, so that's good. Um, it, it's amazing to, to see that video and to know people's story. Um, I think, I mean, for, for me, I, this morning, I was reflecting on sort of my story of uh, how I got to, to where I am. And really, uh, for me, it was uh, the opportunity I got given to work at a church who they also paid for my studies. And uh, it allowed me to, to begin uh, a career and end up here. And it's amazing to be connected with people like that who will believe in you but also create a way for you, you know. And uh, I remember in the beginning working two jobs and uh, studying and all that stuff. But uh, it was just an amazing thing. And it's amazing that uh, there's a development uh, uh, track within that life-saving thing where guys can uh, get set up to have a future. And the sense of dignity that, that comes because you are skilled at something, you adding value to your community, all those things. So it's awesome. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about this because I don't know if you know, but this coming weekend, we are volunteering on all our beaches. Um, well, and we've got a, a block, so sign up for that. I'm going to be at uh, down there at Vecchi's uh, cleaning the reef because I'm a passionate spearer, so clean water is important. And uh, don't get too close because I might have a spear gun. Um, just in case, you never know. It's a little Hilbeck swims past, but anyway. Um, so the, the uh, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit more about this today. And to do that, I've got a guy here from Durban Marine Lifesaving, Mark Lewin. So please give uh, Mark a hand as he comes up. Mark is really involved in the club there, and he's been involved there for a number of years. Uh, his uh, one son is still involved, I think, uh, Barry. And, uh, but yeah, Mark, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, can you just tell us a little, little bit more about the training program that you guys run to help people become lifeguards? I'm just also just going to grab the opportunity in case we don't get a chance to say it again. A very big thank you to Olive Tree Church for getting behind the initiative um, next, on, on next Saturday. It's exciting. They're a humble bunch of guys on the beach, so you're really going to bless them in a special way. So thank you very much for that. Um, the lifeguard program at Marine, as you will have heard, um, no municipalities or organizations train lifeguards. So the only medium to actually get that qualification is through a club. Uh, Marine's program is probably one of the most successful in the country um, at the moment, and we put a lot into that. Um, the the club puts through probably or qualifies about 60 lifeguards, new lifeguards, every year. Of that, about 90% of those uh, people come from either very rural areas or impoverished areas. Um, and they see, for a lot of people, it's seen as an opportunity. Just as an opportunity to learn a skill um, and become, you know, and move on in their lives. Um, the training is intense. There's an internationally, the, the standard of the examination and the standard of the training is an international standard. The, um, it's recognized globally. Um, the guys just have to have very basic swimming skills and a certain command of English because there's an external examination. And the guys will go through this process. Um, every year they get retested on their physical ability and also on the, um, on the theoretical thing and updated on all the latest things like fibrillators and things like that. Um, uh, the, uh, the skills, um, that qualification basically gives you a learner's license. Nobody gets recognized for employment just on the sake of that. They've got to be able to put through a CV on what else they've done. And it's only after about a year that they really get considered for any form of employment. 
So um, they then will get put into squads, and that year is very, very important. Most of you see the glamorous side of life-saving. You see the guys strutting their stuff. Um, but that's because you go to the beach when the weather's nice. Um, they go through intensive training in the week, three training sessions, a minimum of three training sessions in the week, in some of the most appalling, disgusting weather conditions, surf conditions, five o'clock in the morning, um, to develop those skills. Because when they do eventually get a chance to get employment, there's fitness standards and that sort of thing are higher. So, um, the, you know, there's, a, the, there's an ongoing process for getting these guys to the, um, to the ability levels that they need. Cool. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, you're actually involved with the development side at the club as well. So what, challenge do, or what challenges do you face in that development side with some of those guys in the program? Well, I think, um, obviously, the challenges of running any form of club along the Durban beachfront is very tough. It's, there's crime, there's drugs, there's all the sort of things that go around. But one of the things where we really got a heart for within that program is that in addition to the 60-odd guys that we do put through, there's probably a further 20 or 25% that actually can't actually uh, get that opportunity because they either, the club, the club has to, is, is totally self-funded. So there's a dedicated team or committee of guys that find a way to fund administering the club. So a guy joining the club, there's, uh, the club has to be administered. Uh, he's got to be clothed in proper lifeguard kit. They've got to use all the right equipment. So there's a funding ability for that. So the members actually pay a membership fee. The examination for life saving is an international standard. It's an external exam. So that has to be paid for. Um, so where, where I see the, the next need for these guys, and sometimes I feel quite sort of heartfelt because because we, every now and again, we lose that guy because he can't afford it. Um, you kind of feel that you've, you haven't done enough. You're denying that guy an opportunity that he perhaps could have. And it's, sometimes it's quite easy to identify the, the people that you really need to help. Um, and that's one of the key things is, uh, as I say, being able to just um, capture those, those additional willing guys that um, perhaps can't make it. Um, yeah, I mean, the guys have to cover, obviously, all their own transport and stuff, plus all those fees and the exams and stuff. So um, what would it look like, last question, but what would it look like for our city, the city of Durban, for the club that you're involved with, but also for those individuals, um, if you had more support? Well, I think one of the, th the key things, underlying things, is that um, every year, the municipalities and private enterprise take on at least an additional, a minimum of additional 100 lifeguards in and around Durban here, the municipal the pools, and etc. to cater for the holiday season. Um, we find that there's never enough suitably qualified guys. So one of the dangers and our biggest fears is that they will lower the standard. If they lower the standard, they'll have implications for all of us on the beach, our children, the standard of life-saving, the treatment of heart attacks, treatment of injuries, etc., etc. Um, and, and also, for the individual, that lower standard then won't be the opportunity to expand further overseas, etc. because currently, that, re that recognition is worldwide. Um, we, we have young guys working in Dubai. Uh, they send us messages. They've gone on. They're working internationally. And we'd hate to see that standard drop. Um, and that could happen if we don't qualify enough guys. Um, the, uh, the other thing is, uh, uh, it's one more lifesaver that we qualify. It's another guy that's a breadwinner. We know that many of them are supporting families. It's another guy out of the urban jungle. It's another guy off drugs. It's another guy out of crime. 
Um, and the opportunities are extended from there. You'll see that guy, that chap, Tondo Tuzi, who was interviewed there, went from being a nipper, see, and eventually running the entire, Tondo runs the entire beachfront. He's a senior superintendent. He used his lifeguard money to get further edu education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it opened a lot of doors for him. Um, the Navy come and recruit uh, at our life-saving club. They love us. We've semi-trained half their guys. Um, regrettably, in some way, they take our best. Um, but it's really heartfelt and warming to see a guy come back with his family. He's, a, he's now a trained Navy diver, and it all started with giving him an opportunity as a, as a lifeguard. You know? So we see that as a, as a blessing. Um, in many other aspects, and also there's, a, there's an interesting fact, just like we have many of you that have said, this is the area where I can serve in my community in your church. There's some guys that are either not going to get that job, but while they're looking for that job, they've seen this as an area in their community that they can do something, that they've got the skills to do, and they just become incredible members of a life-saving club. We have our awards every year. There's one or two of our members that have done up to 400 hours. They come from an impoverished background, but they've done 400 hours of voluntary duty during a year, manning things, rescues, and so forth. So there's a sense of pride in that. There's a sense of community in that. That area of the Addington Beach precinct, without that kind of service, I think would become one of the more crime-ridden areas of Durban. But they're very, they're very proud of what they're doing down there. And uh, they, you know. And then the other aspect of life-saving is that some of these guys see that they're skilled at something. They either run well, swim well. It has a sporting element to it. I've been very fortunate. I've competed overseas in Hawaii and California and all sorts of places like that. Um, through having a, a, a sort of a life-saving voluntary background. Um, that, pride, that pride in his community, being able to put on a national blazer, we've all seen through this World Cup now what national pride can do. And uh, it's awesome to see those guys aspire to something like that. Um, that's what we'd like to do. We'd like to not lose that extra 25%, because it's going to add a lot of value to our community. It's going to add a lot of value to those individuals. And... Um, we look, we, we're always looking for ways to uplift those guys, and um, that's the way. Any kind of uh, external additional support we can get, hopefully we can capture those extra enthusiastic guys. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. So you've competed for South Africa overseas. Life-saving. Yeah, Do you want to know why? Because of the length of the stroke. Just stand up and go like this. <laughs> I'm going like this. You see that? It's like twice... I've already got twice for his one. But anyway, but thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. Cool. So. Like, I've got a 30 horsepower, and he's got like 100. No, that's how it works. Um, it's an amazing thing that uh, they, Mark's involved with down there, and uh, it's an amazing thing to see those people uh, have an opportunity to grow. And here's what we're going to do. Number one, you can sign up to get involved this coming weekend on Saturday. We're going to go down there and serve the lifeguards, they serve our city all year round, so we want to have one day to serve them. Uh, and number two, you can actually support the club in an ongoing way, like a monthly donation type of thing. Uh, so if you'd like to get involved with that, please can you sign up afterwards. I'm actually going to be speaking a little bit about uh, generosity and God's heart for a generous city. Um, and so we're going to be looking at a lot of Genesis chapter 18, so we, you can read this later if you want to, but it's a fascinating story uh, where God really speaks about his heart for generosity and what a generous city uh, looks like. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day, um, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. 
you might not know this, but Abraham was a Bedouin. So Bedouins are people who historically have traveled around with uh, animals, and so because the, the grazing land doesn't um, so sparse, they actually have to move as families and then graze in different parts. So they had tents, and so he's sitting in the tent at the hottest part of the day. He looked up to notice three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. It's interesting here because uh, in the first line it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham, and the second verse it says, he noticed three men. And the Lord is one of those men. So it's quite an interesting Old Testament reference to the Lord in bodily form, possibly Jesus Christ, who came to visit uh, Abraham before he was born, because Jesus is eternal, same as the Father. Um, and what we also know is that the other two men are actually angels, because they go on to uh, visit a close-by city. And so it's an interesting thing, and I don't think in the beginning um, Abraham knew that these were three, uh, well, the Lord and two other men. Uh, it just says he saw three men, and he noticed three men. And what's interesting is he runs out, and he welcomes them bowing low to the ground. It's a, it's a fascinating thing because we're not used to that in our culture, you know, bowing low to the ground with people. I've got a, a good friend uh, of mine, Zinzi, she uh, is a vendor, and in their culture, when they have official events, like traditional events, the wives, they actually lie flat, face down on the ground as the husbands walk in. I'm just saying, ladies. <laughs> it's just... Let's close in prayer. Drag it. Um... But it's a fascinating thing, right? Because we're not, we're not used to that in, for a lot of us in our culture, but in, in her culture, that's done, you know? And so you can imagine Abraham comes out and he bows low to them and he welcomes them. Uh, and then he goes, my Lord, he said, if it pleases you to stop here for a while, rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with his, this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, Hurry, get three large measures of your best flour. Knead it into dough and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to a servant who quickly prepared it. I like it says quickly. Like it's not like Uber Eats. Like their version of quickly is different. Uh, when the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat and he served it to the men as they ate. Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. So this is probably like a three or four hour deal, right? Like from when they arrive, okay, we bring some water, we do all this stuff, we slaughter a, a young calf, we prepare, we roast the meat, all that kind of stuff. There's butchering going on. Like there's a, a bit of a thing, but can you see Abraham's heart of hospitality? Extraordinary hospitality. And sometimes you might be mistaken to say, well, he did it because it was the Lord meeting him. But remember, they were three men. These were strangers. We also know that this is the culture of the day because in the very next chapter in uh, chapter 19, two of the men, the angels, go and visit Lot in Sodom, uh, the city of Sodom. And, uh, and he, when he sees them, he does the exact same thing. He welcomes them. He offers them water. He invites them home. They say, no, no, we can stay in the square. It's no problem. He says, no, please come to my house. Takes them home. In this ancient culture, hospitality was huge because when you're a Bedouin in a desert environment, you often survive by the kindness of strangers. Because maybe you're in need today, you're traveling somewhere, you're in need today, and you run into someone and they offer you hospitality, and maybe another time they run into you and you offer them hospitality. Hospitality is a massive part of this culture. 
And you can see uh, Abraham's heart for these people because he goes, hurry, like he rushes, hurry, hurry, hurry. He, gets up. he wants to, the, the sense of how do we, we show generosity and hospitality to strangers was a massive part of this. It actually still exists in some forms in the Middle East today within that culture. I remember once I, was, I lived in Jerusalem for four years and I was cycling. I used to do a lot of mountain biking. I was trying one day to get lost because I'd ridden a lot of the trails that I knew. So I was like, I'm just going to go and just ride any new trail I find. And eventually I got lost. I was a successful achiever. Um, and eventually I uh, came out to this little Arab village. And, um, and I came there and I said, oh, so sorry, uh, I'm lost. Which way is Jerusalem, the city center of Jerusalem? So they said, oh, no, it's over there. But uh, if you'd like, why don't you, do you want something to drink? You look hot. Now, I mean, Israel in summer, it's like between 33 and 37, 40 degrees. I've been riding for like five hours. Um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'd love some water. And then they got some water, then they got some watermelon, and they said, stay for coffee. I was like, okay, I'll have some coffee, fine. And, uh, and eventually, like, do you, and so essentially, I said, yeah, I'd love that. And I mean, why not, right? When else are you going to get have this experience. And so all the ladies disappeared because they're a Muslim village. And so the ladies disappeared and all the men came out and we all sat in a circle and they, we told our story and they asked me about myself and what I was doing there. By the way, they didn't know who I was. I could have been Jewish. So not everything you see, and they were Muslims, so not everything you see on TV is the reality of the situation. Um, and so it was this amazing experience where I got to know them and, you know, how long have you been here? Tell me about your family. They asked me about myself, all that kind of stuff. Um, extraordinary hospitality. Can you see the generosity of heart? These people that I encountered, because when I left, I said, why do you guys do this? They said, it's our culture. It's our culture. They look for opportunities to be generous. It's wired into them. Having the privilege of showing generosity is just that. It's a privilege. We want to look for ways to be generous. It's interesting, a different mindset. So they end up, back to our story in Genesis 18, so they end up having a conversation there, um, and Abraham, I mean, the Lord tells Abraham that Sarah's going to have a son in a year's time. She has a chuckle about it. The Lord says, why is she laughing? She says, I'm not laughing. He said, no, you are laughing, so don't lie to the Lord like he knows. And then they're leaving, and then God has this, or the Lord has this chat with Abraham, and he he says, so the Lord told Abraham, I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. If not, I want to know. And so he goes and he investigates what's really going on in Sodom. We have heard about how bad it is. Is it that bad? The other men, that's the two angels, turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? So by this time, Abraham's figured that actually this man is more than just a man. This is God. Suppose you, had, you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why? You would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He's quite bold, Abraham. Okay, and so he comes to God and he intercedes for Sodom. Surely you won't do that. Maybe there's 50 righteous people there. Surely you wouldn't do that. You're the judge of all the earth. He's pleading for actually the wicked too, that God would spare them. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll spare the entire city for their sake. It's fascinating 
Because Abraham goes on to negotiate, like he was a negotiator, which again, a big part of their culture. If you go to the Middle East, try and buy anything, you'll find out about it. But he negotiates with God, like he had read the book, Getting to Yes, Whatever, and he goes, what, what happens if there's not 50? What happens if there's only 45? Surely for the sake of five, you're not going to lose this deal. You know? You're still going to spare them for the 45. And then he goes down to 40, and then all the way down. And eventually, it's like, finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, that I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. He intercedes for the city. And here's the point. is God says, if there are 10 righteous people, I will spare the whole city. In other words, God looks at the city through the lens of the righteous people in it, not the sinners. It's not like God, God was going to investigate the sin. He knew the sin was there and he wanted to deal with it. But his lens on the city, his final ultimate lens of the city, was through the, the, the lens of the righteous people there, not the sinners. Can I ask you what your lens is of our city? Do you see the righteous people here, or do you see the problems? Because God sees it through the lens of the righteous. And let me tell you, right now, this morning, all over our city, there are people gathering in the name of Jesus Christ, and He has made us righteous in Jesus. And let me tell you, we have an extraordinary faith history in our city. I've been to cities of Europe, and their cathedrals are big and empty. Do you understand that it's a privilege to have the faith history that we have and that God looks at us through the lens of you? And so that's how I'm going to view Durban, through the lens of the righteous people there. And so that's why Abraham was interceding because his view was God's view. Look at the righteous. Do you understand that God wants to spare our city, deliver our city, heal our city for the sake of the righteous, which is you and I? Adopt his view. Thank God for what he's done in this place. So the two angels, they get to Sodom, and Lot, Abraham's nephew, meets them there, invites them home, offers them hospitality, and the men are in his house. And later that night, the men of the city come and start bashing on the door and say, Lot, we know you've got two men there, two visitors. Bring them out so that we can rape them. And the angels end up delivering uh, Lot and his family and destroying that city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And that city became synonymous with sinful acts. You see, the, the sin had become so insidious that as a corporate culture of that city, in other words, the men of that city came to do corporately do a sinful act against those men, the people they thought were men, they were angels, the sin was run away, it was rampant, it became known throughout the scriptures as a city of vile deprivation. It's over 40 references in the Bible to Sodom and Gomorrah. Known for sexual sin, that's where we get the word sodomy and sodomite from. But the amazing thing is that in the book of Ezekiel, God actually clarifies what the sin of Sodom was. And it wasn't limited to what we think it is. Now surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked as you and your, lazy do and you and your daughters. He, he says that Jerusalem's sin is worse than Sodom's. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside the door. I'm just going to read that again. Sodom's sins were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. 
You see, we have a lens that the, their sin was a sexual sin, but God's lens is that they were proud because it's only if you're proud that you allow that to happen because then you define it by them and us and because we're better than them, then we can live this way while they live that way. And gluttony and laziness, they were living in comfort, extravagant comfort, while the poor and needy, more than likely the laborers, were living outside the city and suffering. They had built the proverbial gated estate around their lives. And I've got no problem with people who live in gated estates. I understand security, and it's not just a trend here. It's all over the world. Australia's building them now because it's for convenience. You can stay here, and your kids can ride around, and you know where they are. And I get it. So if you live one, don't feel bad. But I think there's a point is that they had built a wall around their hearts that caused them to not care for the poor. And they had allowed a, the evil to become systemic, which means they built a system where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Sound like any cities you know? This one? Any city in the world? They had built a system of trade, of finances, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And God's view on it was different. He thought he had blessed that city for the sake of everyone there, not just for a select few. You see, cities are a place of disproportionate wealth. Because what happens is they attract talent, they attract skills, they attract people because there's a concentration of people, so more basic needs, so you can trade, they become financial governments, industrial sectors. You know what it's like, like you're in primary school and you think you're pretty good at a sport and then you go to high school and your class is like, you know, five times bigger and you're like, oh, I'm not so good anymore. Then you, you, you finish there, and then you go to university, and you think you know, you're know you smart at school, and you go to university, and like these, all these really smart people around you, and then you go from there into corporate, and there's people who have been working for 20 years, and they know so much. You know what it's like? Because in a small town, it's not really like that. You know, see, in a city, in the, if you're a doctor in the city, you get to talk to and meet and, and, and have a relationship with other doctors and learn from their, their experience all the time. So there might be someone who's been practicing medicine for 20 years and you're new and they share generational knowledge to you. If you're in a small town, there's one doctor. It doesn't matter if you're sick or the cat's sick. And basically, you only become a doctor in that town when the old doctor dies. Because there's no point opening one because that granny and her daughter and her daughter are all going to the same doctor. is the same one for generations. So how does that doctor get better if he's not constantly interacting, you know, that's what happens in hospitals. You've got doctors, dozens of doctors, and they learn from each other, and there's a specialist. They come in, and they give extra training, and they give you insight, and you do operations together, and this guy's done it 10 times. It's my first time, and then you... Because the skills deepen, and that has value, and it results in human flourishing and thriving. And God designed it that way, and he meant it for the blessing of all, not just a few. Here's the thing. The Bible mentions the poor over 400 times in the scriptures. Like, I don't know if you've done studies on subjects, but that's a lot. Like, you can do a, subject, a study on, on this, things like atonement, salvation, 
and sometimes they mention fewer times, like massive biblical doctrines, they mention fewer times than the poor. God's heart for the poor and needy is throughout the scriptures. And here's what I'm saying to you. If you're serious about being a follower of Jesus, if you like, I am a follower of Jesus, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, at some point you're going to have to engage with this issue of the poor because it's God's heart. And that's who we, we want to become like. We want to become like him in our city. And I know we all have challenges to that. Sometimes we find it overwhelming. Sometimes it can be intimidating. Sometimes, you know, we feel like we don't have the resources. And it's like, well, I'm struggling to get what I've got. And if I engage with the poor, they're going to want what I've got. Then I'm not going to have it anymore. And we get like, anyone know what I'm talking about? We can find it a little bit intimidating. And then we get driven by guilt. But the whole point is that, we're, you know, we just done the series, God's will for your life, and we didn't say, you know, in week five, God's will for your life is that you are driven by guilt in accomplishing his will. That's not true. Um, what we said is God's will for your life is at some point you go, God, your will, not mine, be done. And God, I want to be a person of love because you love and you love the poor. And, and God, I want to be led by your spirit. I want you to lead me in that process of giving away uh, what you've given me to give. And I want to have a fruitful life. You need to be driven by vision and God's heart for people, not guilt. I remember once, it was, uh, I'm going to be about five more minutes. Uh, once I was, uh, it was the end of the week and I'd walked down the street to go get takeaway food, Chinese. And in our family, we only get Chinese if we're exhausted. You never buy Chinese in here. I'm sure if you like Chinese or you are Chinese, awesome. But in our family, that's how it works. Also because it's the closest place to my home. So I can walk there in two minutes. And I'd order the Chinese. I was sitting there feeling exhausted. It was a Thursday evening, which is like our Friday, end of the week, because we work Sunday to Thursday. And a few chairs up from me was this guy who was obviously in bad shape. He looked like he was living on the streets. And I was sitting there waiting for my Chinese. And then I felt the Holy Spirit say, talk to him. So I just sat there some more, didn't say anything because it's that awkward moment, right? It's like, I'm exhausted. I've given out so much energy and whatever this week. I don't feel like I have the energy to engage. But the Holy Spirit kept saying, talk to him. You know, you know the process if you have been led by the Spirit. Like he doesn't, he's quite persistent. So eventually I'm like, oh, okay. So I turned to him, I introduced myself and, I, and then uh, I say, so tell me your story. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm from out of town I came to Durban looking for work so long ago. I didn't manage to find work. I ended up living on the streets. Things got so bad that one day I was sitting in a park and I was thinking about killing myself. But this guy came up to me and he introduced himself and he, he told me about Jesus. And he told me that God loves me and that he died for my sins and that God's got a plan for my life. And that day I gave my life to Jesus Christ and I'm so excited because on Monday I'm starting a new job. You know he didn't ask me for anything? And he was happy. You see, poverty is not just material. There's relational poverty. You can have broken relationships all around you. You can be lonely. There's spiritual poverty. You can be without God. You can be wealthy, but spiritually poor. And of course, there's material poverty. But the question is, in that situation, who ministered to who? You see, I was scared that this person was going to require something from me, but I walked home encouraged. I remember going home and telling Teresa, man, I met this guy. You will never... I was tired, but now I was energized. Never believe what happened. And the Holy Spirit, he told me to talk to him, and I spoke to him, like, after, like, you know, a few minutes. But anyway, I spoke to him. 
and, and, and he got saved. This guy shared the gospel with him. He just walked up to a complete stranger. He shared the gospel. He got saved. Now he's getting in trouble. I went and empty and came out full. And I might just say to you that in the process of engaging those that you think are poor, you might just find that they give you something that you don't have. Or that God gives you something in that moment that you didn't have because he gave it to you for them. Or that maybe this process is a little bit more nuanced than we like to think where you're going to try and take from me and I'm going to feel guilty if I have any boundaries. So what do we do? Two things. Number one, we intercede like Abraham. Abraham interceded for the city. Prayer changes things. And there's a monthly prayer meeting that happens with churches from around the city every month to pray for our city. And then privately you can pray and really intercede for our city. God, I know you love Durban. And God, for the sake of the righteous here and for the sake of those that you died for on the cross, God, I pray that you turn the situation around. God, work in our education. Prayer changes stuff. Number two, be generous like Abraham. Look for opportunities to be generous, not for reasons to block out. Change the wiring of your heart where, where your heart is going, God, I want to listen to you because you might just have an opportunity for me to be a blessing to someone today. Man, you might have a little adventure. There is nothing as exciting as hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you and doing what He tells you to do and seeing what God does. You might have a little adventure for me today and God, I just want to be open to you today. I remember I mean, this week, we, we watched as a staff, we watched this video. This amazing guy, is, he was an entrepreneur, and um, he had suffered some real rejection as a youngster. He was a young Chinese guy, and then he moved to America. And he had starting a new business at age 30, and he, he said he had like, got his whole thing and pitched his proposal, trying to get an investor, and the guy said no. And he said he just crushed him. And, and he was, just felt so rejected, and you know, all the childhood wounds were there, and he, was, he sobbed. And then he was like, I've got to get through this. I've got to learn to get past this because this is going to happen a lot. And so he did some research and he found a website called rejectiontherapy.com where the basic premise is that you try and get rejected for 30 days to desensitize yourself to the pain of rejection. And so like day one from the website, and he decided to do 100 days of rejection. And so day one, he walked up to a stranger and he said, oh, sorry, can I borrow $100? And the guy was like, uh, no. Well, I mean, what do you need it for? And he was like, oh, sorry. And he ran off. And he was like, oh, I felt terrible. Like, I felt so bad. It was so awkward. And then he thought afterwards, actually, he didn't ask, what do I need it for? Why did I just run away? So the next day, he went up in a burger joint. He had had lunch. And then he said, in America, they got refill for their sodas. You can have as much as you want. Uh, but then he went to the front and said, sorry, could I have a burger refill? Like, can you give me another burger for the one I just ate? And they were like, no, we don't do burger refill. And it, but now he didn't run away. He engaged. And he said he kept on engaging. And, and he got used to it. And then people started saying yes to him, surprisingly. So once he, he rocked up, uh, he lived in Texas, he rocked up at a guy's door, random person's door, and he had a soccer ball under his arm. He was fully kitted out in like soccer gear. And he knocked on a door, and this huge guy opened the door. And he was like, oh, what do you want? And he was like, oh, can I play soccer in your backyard? Because <laughs> he was really trying hard to get rejected. Right? And the guy was like, uh, wow. He said, no, oh, I just you know, need a backyard and I'll be nice. And the guy was like, oh, okay, come in. <laughs> so now he's by himself in the back there trying to... And eventually he said to the guy, wow, why did you let me in? He said, because, you know, this has never happened before. <laughs> he ended up flying an airplane 
He started getting more and more yeses, and then he was like, you know, I've got to do something that's crazy. I've got to try so hard to get rejected. So he went to a local little airport like Virginia, and he walked into the place, and he looked for something that looked like a pilot, and he said, hi, I'd like to fly a plane today. And the guy said, can you fly a plane? He said, no. Have you ever flown a plane? No. And the guy was like, okay, come, let's go. Um, Turns out he was a rich business guy who had just bought himself a brand new little plane and he wanted an excuse to take it for a spin and show it off. He got to fly a plane. But what he did is he just got started into the point of his fear. He got started taking steps in that direction and what he realized is that the thing he feared didn't really need to be feared and it ended up changing his life. He's now a successful entrepreneur. Can I ask you a question? What would your life look like if you just took a small, manageable step towards your fear of engaging with the poor. You know that, that awkward thing of like, how do I actually do this? How do I actually do this? Because God's heart's for the poor and he expects us to engage. So how do I actually do that? You know, I'm just going to take a small, manageable step. I don't know what yours is. Maybe for you, if you employ someone, it's, I'm going to pay them above the going wage rate for their job. There's business guys in our church who have done that. They said, I know what I could pay them, but I want to pay them better. And that's a faith journey they've taken with God. Or what about the people that work in your homes? Not what can I pay you, but how much can I pay you? Just a manageable thing. And pray about it and ask God to lead you. Maybe relationally you want to connect with people and you realize people are in relational poverty and people come into church and, they need, and so you say, I'm going to start a life group so that people who don't have Christian friends can come make some. You know, um, maybe it's to volunteer with We Are Durban. Say, how am I actually going to go on this journey? Or maybe it's to come to the beach day because like, then your mates will be there and it won't be so awkward. You know, I'm just going to do one thing and see what God begins to do in my heart. Maybe it's to support some of those development guys at Durban Marine Life Saving. But I just want you to be open and start to pray these kind of prayers. God, how, God, how do I do this? God, help me to see opportunities for generosity. I'm so blessed uh, with the wife that I have because she's generous. We've had people who work in our homes and, and sometimes they'll be like, you know, my son needs a computer and then she'll be like on Facebook and I'll have to drive around or we'll drive around, we'll go collect a computer and we give it to her and like different opportunities. Like, like she'll see opportunities to do little things that really make a big difference in people's lives. And it's just about an openness and a willingness to say, I'm going to get involved. God, speak to me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for our city. I thank you that you love Durban. I pray for our city, God, and I pray for the vulnerable, the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan. I pray, Father God, that you just, for each of us, God, we, we would forget the guilt, but we'd be inspired by your heart of compassion for people. God, every single person here started as absolutely spiritually bankrupt and poor. And you came and you made us rich. And so, Father, I just pray for us that we'd be led by your Spirit. We'd be open to you speaking to us, God. And we'd allow you to take us on, on adventures, 
of blessing people. In the name of Jesus, amen.